I want to encourage you to turn in your copy of Scripture to Matthew's Gospel. If you have your own copy, I know you're going to find it helpful to have that open and to be reading along with us. Um, We are looking at Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, and we're going to read down to the end of the chapter. Several well-known accounts, passages you're going to be familiar with but maybe have never put together and seen how they fit together in context. So I hope this morning, even if you don't learn something new, maybe the Lord will help show it to you in a new way and will um, press it in, in in fresh ways to your souls. Let me just pray very briefly before we come to the preaching of God's word. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do pray again that you would bless the ministry of your word. We thank you that you have breathed out every part. We thank you that it is profitable for the salvation of our souls. We pray above all things that you would make us to see and hear the Son of God. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak and that you would give us um, eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that understand this morning. We pray that you would draw near to us and that you would minister to us in powerful ways through your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, and Jesus has been talking here about the context of family relationships in the church, brothers and sisters in Christ. He's sort of introduced that in the last chapter when he told um, Simon Peter to go and get the, the coin out of the fish, which is one of the most unusual miracles that Jesus ever did, and 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 to give that for the temple tax. And then he says to, to Peter, essentially, we, we don't have to pay this because the sons are free. The sons are free. Um, and so he begins... They are teaching the doctrine of adoption, and then in chapter 18, he'll begin talking about offenses among brethren, what what life is like within the family of God. And so that's where we're at here uh, in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. And there, Matthew now says, if, and quoting Jesus, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. If my math is right, it's one seven hundred thousandth of a percent less than what he owed. And seized him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. 
He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the most tragic stories from church history is that which occurred in the middle of the 18th century. A Scottish Presbyterian by the name of Ralph Erskine, who's the brother of Ebenezer Erskine, Uh, They're well-remembered for uh, starting the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, the ARP, which is a sister denomination to the PCA. Um, And uh, there was a controversy in the Church of Scotland that involved uh, Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine and many others, and that controversy was over something called the Burger Oath, whether a minister had to take an oath and affirm an oath that only someone who agreed with all of the Reformed faith could hold public office. We are a far way from where they were in the 18th century in Scotland. And, and it became so heated that ultimately there was a division in the church. The Erskines would leave the Church of Scotland. They would form a secession movement. And, and Ralph Erskine would be deposed, which is functional excommunication. He would he'd be deposed by the Church of Scotland, removed from office, and condemned by his own son-in-law who would pronounce that condemnation on him for disagreement over politics. Um, The two would never be reconciled. On his deathbed, Ralph Erskine said, was so heavy-hearted that he called his son-in-law to him so he could be reconciled, and he refused to come. Now, I tell you that because um, where especially in Reformed churches where we take church discipline so seriously, we can oftentimes misunderstand the gracious nature of the process of church discipline and the purpose of it and the heart of the Savior in giving it. Um, There are many who weaponize church discipline when they're serious about it, and they slide into censorious spirits, and they fail to see what they are, And they fail to see that the purpose is to reconcile two individuals who have been redeemed by the same blood, whose massive amounts of sin have been forgiven by the same Savior, and who can walk together in harmony and unity. And so when Jesus gives the outline of what we call the process of church discipline, and you'll see that in uh, verses 15 through 20, he is essentially giving, and I want us to see this this morning first, he's giving the means to reconciled relationships, the means to, um, to offer forgiveness to one another, the means by which forgiveness and reconciliation occur. That's, that's the main purpose. Um, secondly, I want us to consider Peter's response in the measure of forgiveness, and then finally, I want us to consider the mark of forgiveness. So the means, the measure, and the mark. And and I think what we'll see this morning, hopefully, is that the whole of the this section flows together. Now, Jesus is giving for the first time in his ministry, and only here in Matthew, he is giving 
uh, the process by which we are to live together as sinners seeking reconciliation and extending forgiveness to one another. And, and it, is, it is the God-ordained means. Any other means is destined to fail. Any other approach, um, and, and you know this, and I know this in our own lives, it is a very rare thing for people to actually obey the Lord Jesus Christ in the steps in which we are to go when seeking reconciliation with a brother or sister. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying that we should be doing this every time somebody says something to us that we don't like, right? The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins, right? We don't, we don't, we don't pursue every offense with everybody. There, there are many offenses we overlook. Jesus is talking about those offenses that are so serious in nature that irreparable damage feels like it's been done to the relationship. You know, my best friend often says, most relationships between believers are so fragile that they can't even handle more than one offense before we defriend people in our hearts. I think he's right. Most of us are so fragile that we can't even handle one offense in our relationships with others. And Jesus is saying, look, if your brother sins against you, go. Tell him your fault. Be true in him and you alone. Now notice there's, there's a privacy. There's a discretion here. There's a covering even in going to. There, there's not here um, a public uh, excoriation of a person. There's not here uh, an attempt to bring things out into the light so that people are shamed over whatever's happened. Now, obviously, if there is a sin that is criminal in nature, that, that's so egregious, it, it can't be hidden or else you're complicit in it, then it needs to be dealt with through proper channels. But the majority of the offenses that we deal with as Christians, receiving and giving to others, are those things that ought to be dealt with in private? Um, that the breach is a breach in the relationship between two individuals. And Jesus says that the remedy to that is that you ought to go privately and tell your fault to that individual. And then notice he says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. There is almost an expectation that that will be the only step necessary. Um, it often isn't, but we ought to lead with the assumption and, and give a judgment of charity to other believers that if I go and I say, hey, this really hurt me when you did this, this, this I believe you sinned against me in this, that they ought to be quick to say, will you please forgive me? Um, I can count, by the way, on two hands, less than two hands, the number of times somebody has actually asked me to forgive them in my entire life. So it, it's not always the way that we hope it would turn out, but Jesus says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That is the goal. The means is to regain the relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ. And then Jesus gives that next step. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may establish by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, he is clearly, the, the Savior is clearly drawing off of the Mosaic law, where um, if, if there was an accusation made, it, you needed two or three witnesses to substantiate that. And here Jesus is saying that that in some way spiritually now applies to the work of reconciliation in the body. And um, very interesting. I, I had never heard this before. I recently heard uh, Professor John Murray 
who was the late professor of systematic theology at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, say, the reason Jesus establishes this is because God is the triune God. And you have to listen very carefully. The triune God lives in perfect unity in the diversity of his persons. And when he redeems us, he calls us to live as diverse individuals in the unity of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? And so that the purpose of the Savior saying here, take two or three with you, is that when there's a breach in the relationship with another, there's a breach in the body itself, and the unity of believers is, as it were, shaken because of the unsettled nature of a, a breached relationship. And because there is no breach in the relationship of the triune God, there ought not be breaches in the relationship of professing believers, no matter what they've done. Now, it ought to be the hope that they would listen, um, but Jesus gives that third step to tell it to the church. And whether that is leaders in the church, whether that is the congregation as a whole, whether that is um, a, a mutual working of the two, this would be the third and final step. And if they don't listen to the collective body in which unity has been disrupted, Jesus says they are to be like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, here's the really interesting thing, and so many people miss this. Who, who were the Pharisees hating Jesus for ministering to the most? Heathens and tax collectors. So even when someone is put outside the fellowship and pronounced to be an unbeliever, they de facto become an object of evangelism for restoration, not censorious, self-righteous ostracization. Um, an old writer, Lang, puts it this way. This is beautiful. He said, where the discipline of the church ceases, its missionary work commences anew. Isn't that awesome? When the, where the discipline of the church ceases, the missionary work of the church commences anew. And what is behind all of this? What's behind the method of reconciliation and forgiveness and restoration and everything Jesus is giving is the heart of the Savior, the loving heart of the Savior, that, that if any of this is done with any other spirit, then a profound outbreaking of love from the heart of a sinner, then, then it's not what the Savior has given the church as the means to healing relationships. Um, Phil Riken says so wisely, when Christians are caught in sin, they do not need isolation or amputation, they need restoration. When, Christ, when Christians are caught in sin, they do not need isolation or amputation, so to be neglected or to be dealt with harshly, they need restoration. John Calvin, quoting on Galatians 6, that verse where it says, if anyone, uh, if, if you see anyone caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Uh, Calvin says, hardly less injury is frequently done by unseasonable and excessive severity, which under the plausible name of zeal, so we can, we can be harsh in the name of faithfulness and zeal. We can be heavy-handed. We can be overly severe. Calvin says, 
um, oftentimes those injuries really spring from pride, from dislike and contempt of the brethren. So we don't want to weaponize church discipline. We want to see this process as a process of restoration and forgiveness and healing and renewal and reclaiming, ultimately. Um, Well, secondly, I want us to consider briefly the measure of forgiveness. And you can imagine, here's Simon Peter, and he's listening to this. First time anybody's ever heard this. And uh, he's, he's processing in his brain the people who he feels like have hurt him. And he says to Jesus, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times. And you get the sense that Peter's quite satisfied with how gracious he's willing to be. I mean, I could, I could forgive somebody up to seven times. And, and he's already missing the point of what Jesus has just taught. This is ad infinitum. And so the Savior gives that symbolic answer. He says, not up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Um, the rest of this passage is going to be a reflection of um, what's in Peter's heart and Jesus really dealing with Peter. Um, you know, we may sit here this morning, we, we may think, you know, I'm, I, I'm ready to forgive other people as many times as I have to. But the reality is, the better part of professing Christians are not ready to extend forgiveness more than once. This is a this is a deep problem in the Church of Jesus Christ. Um, we all have the same heart as Peter. We may be willing to say, "Well, I would even do this much." Um, but even in that, Peter's essentially saying, I don't need to be forgiven and reconciled repeatedly in my relationships with others. See, Peter doesn't even know his own heart. In fact, he's thinking only outward about what others have done to him. He's not thinking about how he has. And, and remember, Peter was one who offended. Now, what's so interesting about this is Um, Peter is the one who's going to have to be confronted by Paul in Galatians. The same Peter who says, Lord, how often, up to seven times, is going to be the one who denies the gospel. The the apostle, post-Pentecost, denies the gospel by refusing to eat with Gentile believers. Um, When we think about the measure of, of forgiveness, we have to be prepared to forgive a brother or a sister ad infinitum. It doesn't mean that we we tell someone who's unrepentant, I forgive you. Obviously, we, our hearts need to be ready to extend forgiveness. I, I sometimes um, am concerned when I hear some Christians say to someone who hasn't um, asked for forgiveness, well, I forgive you. Well, our hearts need to be ready to forgive. Um, And when they come, no matter how many times, we need to extend that forgiveness to them. Well, finally, I want us to consider the mark of forgiveness. And here, um, 
Jesus is going to give this parable, and it's one that you know well, and he is going to give it as a sort of a mirror. All the parables of Jesus are mirrors. And and we're meant to look into that mirror, and we're meant to, to ask, where am I? Where am I in this parable? Um, Jesus is essentially holding this mirror up for Peter. It's, it's a response to Peter's statement, and he's essentially saying, Peter, I want you to see where you could possibly be with the statement that you just made. And he tells the story of... Uh, the man who owed, owed a, an enormous debt to a king. We don't know what king. Uh, Jesus doesn't use Herod in this account. He doesn't. He 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 speaks of some foreign king, and 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 this man owed this huge debt that he couldn't pay. And and you know the story. The king says that the man and his family are going to have to become indentured servants and work off that debt for the rest of their lives. And the man pleads and he begs for forgiveness. And and. The king graciously forgives all the debt. Uh, The king had enough resources that he didn't need the money. Um, The king is a picture of God himself. Uh, He didn't need that enormous amount of money. He could cancel that debt out of his own fullness, out of his graciousness and and his bounty. And the man goes on his way and notice there's almost like there's almost an immediacy with which the story turns. He the king has just said canceled. And he goes and he finds one of his servants who owe him almost nothing. And he seizes him and he begins to choke him. See the severity the severity, the harshness, the vitriol. Um, he begins to deal severely with this man and says, pay me what you owe now. And that man does the same thing that this man did. He pleads with him to forgive his debt, but he would not. Now notice... Fellow servants were watching this. By the way, there's a, there's a story there for us. There's a word there for us. Um, what happens between two brethren is oftentimes much more visible to the watching world and to the church than we realize. And, and those servants go, and they tell the king what's happened and how this man has dealt harshly with this servant who owed so little. And notice the master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant? Now, what is Jesus doing here? He's saying someone who is truly forgiven, someone who knows the enormity of the debt. I heard it put this way recently, if you're in Christ, God has forgiven you 200,000 years of debt. Um, I had a professing Christian say to me recently, um, you know, I just, I just don't think about my sin that much. Um, 
David, when he talks about his sin, says, my sins are more numerous than the hairs on my head. I'm losing my hair at 42, but I still have a lot of hair I can't count. And you got a lot of sin amassed for Judgment Day, a lot, a mountain of sin, a world of sin. James says the tongue is a world of iniquity. James says we all stumble in many ways, many ways. Um, we, don't even, we don't even know the beginning of how wicked and depraved we are. We don't know the smallest measurement of our sinfulness. And yet, Jesus is saying that when you go to the one who can forgive you that debt and he forgives all of it, then the mark that you've been forgiven is how you deal with others on the horizontal plane. Isn't that interesting? You can never, you can never separate the vertical dimension from the horizontal, right? John says in 1 John, if, if you don't love your brother who you've seen, then you don't love God who you haven't seen. So the vertical has an inseparable relationship to the horizontal. And so if you are someone who has been forgiven the enormity of your debt before God, then you will in turn be one who extends immeasurable grace and mercy to those that offend you and are in debt to you. We ought to be so quick. You know, this is really interesting, by the way. Um, David commits just some egregious sin with Bathsheba and um, Uriah murdering, premeditating the murder of one of his best friends, one of his mighty men who was with him when he was fleeing Saul. Um, I mean, this guy gave up everything for David. Um, And when David finally comes to repent, Nathan the prophet says, you're the man. David says, I've sinned against the Lord. And then there's not a verse. This is astonishing. There's not a verse in between. David saying, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin. Yes, there were grave consequences, but those are, those are in God's hands to impose, not ours. David had unbelievable guilt before the Lord. And the second he went to God and confessed his sin, Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin. That's how, that's how large God's mercy is. Now, if, if that's true for David, who did those things, think of, think of how, how large God's mercy is for the totality of your life, all the thoughts and words and actions. And then when we look at one another, I should see you as someone who's been purchased with the same blood as me, who has received the same forgiveness as I have, And I should be able to extend that forgiveness indiscriminately to any brother or sister who is desiring that or who is willing to ask for forgiveness. Now, um, there is a final little section here, and and that is, notice verse 34, um, in anger, the master delivered this man to the jailers until he should pay his debt. Now, Jesus is clearly saying... um, And and notice this, he says, uh, essentially, that there's no way you can ever pay your debt. 
He's not saying there's a way for you to pay your debt off. He's, he's essentially telling Peter, Peter, there is no way for you to, for, to, to pay for all the sins that you've done. What, what, is, what, is, what is the crux? What holds everything together in this passage? Well, the king's son is saying these things, and he's on his way to the cross to shed his blood for his people. The son of the king who's telling this parable, who's giving this teaching, is on his way to lay down his life for Peter so that even when Peter can deny three times that he knew the Lord at the very moment in redemptive history when Jesus is fulfilling salvation, that that Peter can be restored by Christ in a moment after the resurrection. You know, that's another astonishing thing, isn't it, that um, when Jesus finally comes to Peter and, and he really teaches us the heart of restoration, doesn't he? Peter has denied him at the moment when Jesus is going to suffer to atone for his sins. And, and uh, one of my best friends likes to say to me, he says, you know, Jesus doesn't come to Peter and say, okay, Peter, I'm going to put you on a two-year probation and we're going to make sure that you're really broken and that those tears are real. He doesn't say that. He says, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. You know I love you. Um, We need a lot more of this in our hearts and lives. I do. I imagine you do. Um, there will be times of testing. There will be times, there, there will be broken relationships. You know, uh, one of the hardest things of life in this fallen world is that there are times when you won't be reconciled because someone is unwilling to repent, unwilling to seek that out because of their Pharisaic hearts or their love of the world. But in so much as it depends on me, in so much as it depends on you personally, this ought to be the goal of our relationships together. And the world can have this. Let me just say that. Let me close with this. You know, we, we are living the last two years in this cancel culture, and, and I've noticed how quickly the church and, and professing believers are ready to sort of take up the weapons of the world. This is antithetical. This is supernatural. This is otherworldly. You understand? No other organization, no other society can have this. Only those who have been redeemed by Christ. It's remarkable how, how that should work out in our relationships, in our churches. The warmth, the love, the affection, the kindness, the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness, the forbearance, the tenderness. Um, as orthodox as you want to be, you should be just as tender. You should pursue tenderness with the same zeal as you pursue theological precision. Um, Severity is not a fruit of the Spirit. Censoriousness is not a fruit of the Spirit. I want to encourage you, wherever you are this morning, that you would first see your own need for the forgiveness of your sins. I would then encourage you to consider your relationships with others. And ask, am I someone who is ready, eager to extend forgiveness repeatedly if this brother or sister um, acknowledges their sin? Um, 
And then I would just encourage you as a church that this would be part of the ethos of Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, that others would see this as a loving, warm, forgiving, reconciling church. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do acknowledge how difficult these things are, how much we have failed, how quick we, quickly we allow bitterness to spring up in our hearts. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would show us afresh how much you have atoned for by hanging on the tree for our sin. We pray that you would make us to see the enormity of our sins nailed to the cross and that you would help us to to be gracious and merciful and forgiving and reconciling toward those who sin against us. Oh God, would you do a deep work in our hearts and minds that we would be quick to pursue reconciliation and restoration. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.